Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. Uncertainty can feel like a four-letter word. Unpredictable. Unreliable. Doubt. The uncertainty of a global pandemic. Our current politics. Inflation. The wars in Ukraine and Israel. The news cycle brings us a daily swirl of forces seemingly outside our control. And if that's just how things are, how are we supposed to react? Accept it? Seek certainty wherever we can? Uh, Well, a new book suggests that we confront the unknown, embrace it even, in the service of wisdom, invention, and new understandings. Maggie Jackson is the author of this new book titled Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. And she joins us now. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you so much. Our first impression of uncertainty, I think for most of us, is that it's bad and something we should eliminate wherever we can. And it seems like that was maybe your initial thesis, that you made the assumption many of us do, that being unsure was something to overcome en route to a definitive answer. But then you changed your mind. Yes, I was actually writing a book about thinking in the digital age and what kinds of thinking we need, uh, reflection, contemplation, et cetera, in this time of you know fragmentation and tech you know, overuse. And the first chapter was about uncertainty. Uh, and I, and as you indicated, as you said, I really thought that that would be it, you know, lickety split, you'd get past uncertainty and then you'd get to the, the answer and, and the skill and thinking. And I completely, I was completely wrong. Uh, I, two things happened. One is I discovered that there was a lot more to uncertainty than a chapter. And then secondly, I discovered just a few years ago, an incredibly interesting explosion of research across many, many different fields, medicine, business, uh, you know, politics, uh, economics, uh, in uncertainty, in understanding what it is, in kind of wrestling with something that's been swept under the rug. Why do you think uncertainty gets such a bad rap? (laughs) Well, there are a couple different factors. First of all, it's natural that we dislike uncertainty. As humans, as organisms, we we evolve to need and want answers. So when you're walking in the forest and you see a shadow, For your own sake, you really need to know whether it's a tiger or a swaying tree in the wind. Uh, So we are built, basically, to find uncertainty, as psychologists say, aversive. Um, And that's that's a good thing. Um, At the same time, there are tremendous pressures, and these go back hundreds of years, uh, for humans to seek certainty, not just an answer, but to actually uh, venerate and prioritize outcome versus the process of thinking. So you have this great long march toward the efficiency culture that we live in, toward capitalism, uh, our tech devices, we can go into that more, uh, are very, very uh, present us with neat, pat answers. And some psychologists think actually are maybe uh, contributing to a rise in intolerance, not just dislike, but fear of uncertainty. So there are a lot of different pressures on us, and there have been for a long time, to not uh, inhabit and even understand uncertainty. 
In preparing for this show, I kept coming back, weirdly, to that scene from the movie Oppenheimer, where they're waiting to test whether the nuclear bomb works for the very first time. And the scientists are joking and taking bets on whether the Trinity test is going to ignite the atmosphere. We think there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world. Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. And it it made me chuckle in that moment. And I think it's sort of designed to bring a little levity to it. But that's kind of how I think about uncertainty as a calculated risk, that it's it's never zero because nothing is ever zero risk. Right. Well, that's that raises a great question. Um, and that allows us to define uncertainty because there are basically two types of uncertainty, give or take a lot of debate about this. But in any case, the kind of uncertainty that you refer to is called aleatory uncertainty. That's the unknown. That's what humans cannot know. So despite all the mathematical models and the AI, et cetera, that we have, we really don't know whether the volcano will erupt at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, or the bomb will ignite the atmosphere, or whether AI will take over and kill us all. So that's the unknown. But then at the same time, in complement, and I won't say in contrast, because these two types of uncertainty kind of work hand in hand, is our uncertainty. Our, it's called epistemic uncertainty or psychological uncertainty. And that's really the human response to the unknown. You know. I meet something new and unexpected and murky, or I get the notice that my company is going to merge with another, and suddenly I'm hit with the recognition of the limits of my knowledge. That's another way to define epistemic uncertainty. So it's my reaction, human reaction to the unknown, and and what a reaction we have. Yeah, for for sure. And listeners, we want to hear from you this hour, too. Uh, if you have moments of uncertainty and how they've shaped your life, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. And I do want to talk about some of our reactions to that kind of what Keats calls half knowledge or where we don't have all of the answers immediately at our fingertips and some of the pitfalls that come from those feelings, because it is uncomfortable And in your book, you write that it's meant to be uncomfortable. And the less certain we are about a thing, the more likely we might be to cling to things we know or methods that have worked for us in the past, right? Even if they're not going to work for the present. Right. The more under duress we are, tired, fatigued, uh, the more pressure we feel to need to give to an answer. These situational factors drive us toward a yearning for certainty and away from uh, inhabiting the uncertainty or, or picking up, I call uncertainty an invitation. And, and just to drill down a little bit into that reaction, um, scientists now call uncertainty good stress. Now, why is that? Well, we've talked about how aversive and uncomfortable it feels. That's actually the stress response that you get from your encounter with the new or the murky or the unexpected. You know, your body is actually slowing you down and uh, instigating a cascading uh, stream of hormones and neurotransmitters that basically uh, affect changes. Now, this is different than the flight or fight response we might experience. Uh, this is, you know, nevertheless, uh, your heart might beat, your palms might sweat, but at the same time, your brain undergoes these amazing changes. Your focus widens. 
your working memory is bolstered, and your brain becomes more receptive to new data. So that moment when you're saying, aha, I don't know, I'm not sure, is really a moment when uh, of wakefulness, I call it. It, you're, 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 you're actually, uh, your brain is telling itself, one neuroscientist told me, that your brain is telling your, itself that there's something to be learned here. And so if you fear it and you squander that opportunity, you're actually retreating from a chance to, you know, update your knowledge and your understanding of the world. It's a really, I call it epic. That moment when you're uncertain is an epic chance. I love that. It's an opportunity to learn. And I think, you know, it, it kind of makes me think so much of my job as a journalist in the last like decade or so has, I always joke that my favorite things to write about or my favorite things to talk about are the ones where the more I learn, the less I feel like I know. Yeah, exactly. That's why I wade into topics like uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> and because, yeah, go yes. ahead. Oh, yeah. No, that's right. I think that's, um, you know, journalism is highly related, uh, if you like it, to curiosity. And curiosity is really related to uncertainty. In fact, that good stress of uncertainty is one of the pillars of the curious personality. So people who are curious. And oh, I am old. such a nosy person. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, my daughters just are tired of growing up with a journalist in the house. It's hard to have a reporter for a mom. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyhow, I love to ask questions. And but you you have to be able to kind of tolerate or uh, embrace the awkwardness, as as we know, you know, dissent, expressing dissent, asking questions. Sometimes it's a risk taking. You don't know what you're going to find at the other end, whether or not you're reporting a story or you're you know, asking, uh, you know, a, a friend about a difficult situation. It makes me think a little bit of exercise. So there is an uncomfortableness to exercise, but we sort of recognize the goal at the end of it is we are stronger, we're more flexible, we're healthier. Is that how should we should be thinking of it? That like the uncomfortableness is sort of like training our our uncertainty muscle to be better than it was the day before? Yes, I think you can think of it that way. And of course, knowledge and learning is all about incrementally expanding your capability. Uh, so I think of it as sort of frontier work, uncertain, being uncertain is frontier work, you know, going back to that moment when you're, you know, you're uncertain, and you and you dive right into it, you don't retreat from it. That's actually going to strengthen you. It's going to uh, enable you to expand what you know and to uh, work at the edge of what you don't know. That's, of course, where all the action happens. You know, the, as, as scientists say, no surprise, no learning. And babies, are, as, as parents know, but scientists have proven are more attracted to surprising toys because they are just learning machines. Uh, so I think it's, uh, yeah, you, you do gain strength and capability by constantly taking on something new. It could be as something as small as trying a new dish at a restaurant. And when I first heard this is an actual exercise used by psychologists to help people who are so-called intolerant of uncertainty. 
that intolerance is that personality. It's, it's where we sit on the spectrum of our comfort with uncertainty. Some people are, are just on the other end of the spectrum where they really cannot stand uncertainty. They can't stand surprises. They only see the world in black and white. It's a very sad and kind of narrow way to live. And people who are tolerant of uncertainty are the ones who go to a foreign country even when they don't know the uh, language or they're off, you know, trying something new, trying something new. Uh, and so back to the, you know, choose a new dish. I first, I kind of scoffed, okay, all right, how is that going to help us? But then I thought, you know, I'll go to a restaurant on a Friday, maybe the same comfortable one I've been to many times before. I'll order the clam spaghetti again. And, <laughs> you know, and I mean, really, we do need to be as creatures, we, especially, I guess, in a modern society, we need to be nudged a bit off of our uh, comfort zone. And as the world grows more volatile and unpredictable, we really need to, you know, be even more on guard, so to speak, about uh, constantly hanging out at the edge of what we know. Yeah, you write that we're in a seismic shift of not knowing. So and you talk a little bit about AI and but what is sort of driving this uh, seismic shift? Well, I would say, again, for hundreds of years, we, uh, you know, humans, especially in the West societies have been pushing towards certainty. It wasn't that long ago that the brain was seen as set in stone in adulthood and that the stars were seen as fixed in the sky and et cetera, et cetera. Again, I'm talking historically. Dewey called the philosopher John Dewey called this the quest for certainty. Um, but, you know, now, of course, science and technology and other, uh, you know, uh, kind of questioning fields have begun to understand how much we don't know. You know, history has not all been written. We don't know all science, you know, et cetera. It, it, we can't know it all. And that the reminder, the, the renewed understanding that humanity doesn't know presents us with a kind of question. Do we retreat into this quest for certainty or do we begin to really understand that not knowing is a wonderfully important frontier. And the reason I say we're in a, we are at the cusp of a seismic shift in our relationship to not knowing is that I think while we see certainty seeking all around us every single day from politics to the, around the kitchen table to, you know, certainly online, at the same time, this new research into uncertainty is beginning to understand how it does strengthen us. So in medicine, young doctors, well, I, I wrote about a pilot study in Maine where young resident doctors were being taught that it's okay to say, I don't know. And it was helping them in their practice as diagnosticians. They began to see that there might be multiple possibilities on the table, not just one or the other. And, and in sim similar cases, people are beginning to understand uh, new research shows that in a crunch, in a crisis, ambivalent CEOs are more resourceful because, again, they are coping with multiple possibilities. So I found all this great evidence that maybe we're beginning to, you know, uh, stick our heads out of our shell, turtle, you know, <laughs> the investigating turtle rather than the uh, scared turtle about life in the world. I think that that's where we need to go if we're going to solve these complex problems all around us. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into how uncertainty is changing the way we think about everything from medicine to the Mars rover. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Thank you. 
This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking this hour about uncertainty and how living in the moment in an improvisational way, learning as you go, can be good for your health. But what about the extremes, like the uncertainty of not knowing where you're going to sleep at night or where your next meal is coming from? When is not knowing good and when might it be bad? Still with us is Maggie Jackson, the author of the new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. So I think, you know, one of the first reactions that a lot of people have is that uncertainty, okay, it can be good, but it's got to have its limits. Or maybe the better way to think about it is that uncertainty has some dangerous cousins, like insecurity. So being insecure about whether you're going to pay your rent is is different than being uncertain about making a career change. Does that make sense? Yes, and I think there are two facets to what you're saying, and and it's very true. Um, First of all, in the scope of life, there are limits to uh, how much uncertainty humanity can handle, any any particular human. And people who grow up in precarity and unpredictability, which is seen as a very, very important um, marker of uh, lower economic uh, situations and environments, um, you know, actually have, uh, you know, often have, uh, you know, there's an impact on people's cognition um, because they're always constantly in survival mode through, you know, situational injustices, often no fault of their own. Uh, So there is definitely no one wants to live in the meta kind of supersized uncertainty and no one, you know, should have to do that. We need predictability and routine and et cetera. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, there is there are, are, are new studies that show that among people raised in precarity, um, there are so-called hidden strengths. And this is a new area of research. This is really important to pay attention to because so often society, academics, media, et cetera, people pay only attention to the deficits of living in insecure circumstances. And our society is set up to uh, basically uh, assume that life should be and is predictable. So variations on that are just, you know, off off the table for discussion or study. And so these hidden talents are uh, in high entunement with the environment, um, better working memory, the kinds of arousal that I talk about, the beginning of the problem, that it, the, the program that are prompted by being uncertain, that kind of wakefulness. It's, it's, it, it occurs in spades when you're in an insecure environment due to alcoholism, alcoholism or adoption, et cetera. So there, it's a very complicated picture. Um, but and the, the final thing I'd say is that uncertainty is never the goal whether you're solving a problem or, you know, putting your, you're trying to get your kids out the door in, in the middle, in the morning, uh, uncertainty is never the goal. And I, I stress that it's never the, and I'm talking about a vehicle toward the better answer. 
I'm talking about expanding the space between question and answer so that we have more room to wiggle and go deeper. It makes me think of this study with young children where researchers put them in a room with toys and other fun and interesting objects to kind of see what they would do. And one set of kids went in with their mothers who would initially sit and play with them and then they'd move to the side. And then the others went in without their mothers. And what was fascinating to me is the ones that had a reassuring parental figure were more curious, were more likely to take risks, to explore. And they had that like that anchor, that ability. It's almost like that stability gave them the ability to be more comfortable with uncertainty. Absolutely. And there's a uh, term in developmental psychology called the zone of proximal development. And basically, it's now taken to mean scaffolding. So it, 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 it means that a parent or a caregiver or a teacher will step in and help a child when they're getting a little overwhelmed so that then they can continue to learn at the edge of what they know. Um, but the zone of proximal development is sort of a meta metaphor for all of what human learning is. You know, we want to be at that edge because as the scientist Philip David Zalazzo told me, that's the green bud on the tree. That's where the, where the growth occurs. So that's why I keep going back again and again to the idea that, hey, that's what uncertainty is. It's ushering you to that edge of what you know, and it's exhilarating, it's difficult, it's it it's limited it, it it's not limitless but at the same time that's where human flourishing occurs both in terms of mental wellness and also learning education and even understanding one another what is the difference between uncertainty and anxiety because anxiety can can be crippling i think it can make you so risk averse that it becomes hard to live a normal life Oh, absolutely. And anxiety rates are really rising today across generations. And it's a real problem on college campuses, but it's a problem in assisted living, um, you know, uh, places too, uh, along with many other mental disorders. Um, well, anxiety is now seen by many leading psychologists as to be, in, in a simple way, fear of the unknown. And so anxiety is seen as not just a fountain of worry all the time, but really just being threatened by not knowing. Well, that's also how we'd explain intolerance of uncertainty, that fear, the, the simple way to talk about that personality dis disposition is to say that people who are intolerant of uncertainty or they're fearful of the unknown are threatened by not knowing, by, by the unknown versus challenged by it. And so now it's really exciting because um, many different interventions are being uh, undertaken that are very successful to treat anxiety by treating intolerance of uncertainty. So basically, it's again, you know, challenging people to delegate more at work or to take on something new or to try that new ragu at the Friday restaurant, etc. And these simple practical steps are, first of all, pretty hard and tough in, in life. But at the same time, they're actually raising people's tolerance of uncertainty and um, in one study by Michelle Degas in Canada, uh, they actually led to a significant drop in anxiety, depression. And after you know, undergoing 12 weeks of learning about bolstering their tolerance of uncertainty, people who had very you know, clinical generalized anxiety disorder 
began to worry about as much as people in the general population. Wow. I mean, significant, a dramatic change. And if you want to join our conversation about uncertainty, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. I couldn't let an hour about uncertainty go by without talking about what was probably the most uncertain time in most of our lives, which was the COVID-19 pandemic. How did that put the notion of uncertainty to the ultimate test? Absolutely. Well, I think that it was overwhelming. Uh, it was, you know, there was so much real fear. Uh, that wasn't uh, just a, 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 a kind of imaginary fear. It was, it was life and death. And it tested on us, us on so many different ways. It was really important to, it's not that we can immediately say, hey, yeah, embrace uncertainty of that on that score to that level. Absolutely. But at the same time, what we can do under circumstances like that and there probably will be another pandemic, or even the coming 2024, which is filled with a lot of unknowns for all of us, we can approach uncertainty differently. So it's not that many people have written or talked to me about how they're going through a difficult medical time, a health crisis, a cancer diagnosis. And I, I've been there myself. And I know that at that point, uncertainty does feel like a four-letter word. You just want to know the results of that medical test. You just want to get it all over with and be on safe ground again. But at the same time, um, one study with multiple sclerosis patients found that, again, you know, bolstering people's tolerance of uncertainty um, led to them feeling more resilient as they coped with their uh, diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So if you can see uncertainty as a whole new approach, a whole kind of new lens on the world, and suddenly not knowing doesn't become an automatic disaster, it isn't weakness, it's certainly not inertia. I think it's so often that we think of uncertainty as this big swamp that we face, this dark abyss that we you know, just don't want to get stuck in. And it's not Actually, uh, Ohio State researcher Stephanie Gorka uh, talks about the dynamism of uncertainty, the chance that it will, uh, you know, that in, it actually, uncertainty to her means uh, the opportunity for life to go in a different direction. And that is what life does, for better or worse. And so if we, if we can contend with that in a more curious, wondering way, then we can contend with life. Yeah, and you referenced the 2024 election, which I'm sure is giving a lot of people a fair bit of uncertainty. But I also think as somebody who's covered politics for more than a decade now, that there's this, I guess, allergy to uncertainty in politics that you need to know what the problem is, what the solution is, how you're going to fix it. And there's also this real, like, aversion to being wrong. Like we call it a flip-flop when somebody changes their mind. Right, exactly. And and the and the wonderful 18th century philosopher John Stuart Mill had an incredibly wonderful term for partisans. He called them one-eyed thinkers. And of course in society we do need one-eyed thinkers, people who just have conviction almost to the point of tunnel vision. Uh, we do knew that we do need that for social revolutions of all kinds, but at the same time, he talked about 
uh, people who are more able to be complete thinkers, his term was. Complete thinkers are those who are able to contend with other perspectives, to learn from them. And again and again and again in my book, I came up with so much different research about how people who can embrace uncertainty are better at arguing, actually. They're no, they're, they have no less conviction. They're actually no less assertive, but they're able to kind of uh, allow for a space of mutual learning, which is, after, after all, what engagement should be. And I think we're all capable. It's, it's easy, I suppose, to blame the politicians for coming out with utter certainty to the point of hubris and using this black and white language uh, which which she basically sweeps uncertainty under the rug. But at the same time, aren't we all capable? We want our doctors to say, this is the way it's going to be. <laughs> you have 3.2 months to live or, you know, 36 more years. And, and this we want our politicians to say they're going to fix it all and et cetera. We all need to take another look at how we discuss and approach uncertainty. Yeah, I the last thing you want is your doctor to say look at a biopsy or look at like a funny mole on your shoulder and go gosh, I'm really not sure. Well, yes, exactly, but at the same time, uh you know, there are studies that show that expressions of uncertainty. Now again, we sh we we need to uh understand what we mean by expressions of uncertainty. You know, words like maybe or I need to look this up or sometimes. Those are actually called hedge words and they're expressions of uncertainty. And they are actually uh, signals to another person that there's more to know, which is really important if you're trying to move forward. And they're also signals that you are receptive to another people's. So here we are in a time of patient-centered care and we're in a time of evidence-based medicine when you know diagnosis etc cetera, etc cetera, should be moving forward while accruing new evidence and new uh, understanding uh, you know given the patient's orientation so this is something that we should accommodate and it, and actually a lot of patients do understand that and they are not as uh, phobic about uncertainty with their we think we want certainty we sort of still have that, I think, an outdated lens on the world. But I think if you begin to really pick up on it and open your eyes to all that uncertainty can do, then you begin to see, hey, it's all around us. It's a matter of harnessing it. We got a really great question about faith and uncertainty through our emails. Um, it's from John in Westerville. And he says that people of faith deal with uncertainty with faith, so that uncertainty will be handled by God and it's not for them to worry. And I think that's a really interesting take because I, I sort of joke, I'm the way I'm wired, I joke that I've never been sure about anything completely in my entire life. And that may be great for my job, but it hasn't been so great for like faith and religion. Yeah. Well, that's a really important question. And I do know that very often people of faith do talk about how uncertainty is woven into their faith, that it's, you know, either living with it or uh, understanding that they don't have complete control over life. Uh, and, and, and all of that, I love the fact that there's complexity there in this, in this position. I love the fact that there's an ability to recognize that we might be able to control, but not to the, you know, the perfect degree. And I think that's really important. And, and so I'd say, um, 
you know, it's, I think that I, I all, when it comes to people's treatment of knowledge, which I guess faith is, I liken being and leaning into uncertainty to be, to treat knowledge as a kind of tapestry whose mutability is its very strength. And people who shun or fear uncertainty tend to treat knowledge as a rock to hold and defend. So if you can kind of look at the way a tapestry is woven with constant improvements or constant new threads as you know bits of evidence, uh, I think that's actually maybe what the, that gentleman was indicating in his, his you know, reference to faith. Yeah, I think the best thing that's really helped me is to think of it like I can believe in something without being 100% sure. Like you can believe, like faith is the definition to a certain extent, I think, of believing without knowing. I think so. And it's really important. I mean, when we look at the, to flip to the, you know, issue of helicopter parenting. Oh my goodness, I have big feelings about that. (laughs) Isn't that just certainty seeking? I mean, the checking, checking, checking of the devices, the surveillance tactics that parents use. I mean, again, I'm I'm a nosy person and I'm not a laid back mom and et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, helicopter parenting is removing the faith or trust that you have in a human being to carry out their life. And I'm not saying that kids don't, and especially teenagers, don't need guardrails and supervision, et cetera. I'm not saying just let it all go. But at the same time, when we seek certain answers, we sort of take away their ability to be who they would be. And in being who they would and could be, they grow into someone who might surprise us. And that's where mutual learning comes in. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Maggie and I are going to explore ways to increase our comfort with uncertainty in our day-to-day lives. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to Life Kit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking this hour about uncertainty and how getting comfortable living on the edge of knowing can transform your life for the better. Author Maggie Jackson is still with us, and her new book is entitled Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. I want to turn our conversation in this final segment towards how to become what you describe as the adaptive expert. So how we learn and develop expertise while still staying curious. Sure. And that's so important. Uh, I went to Toronto and I was visiting operating rooms to try to investigate how surgeons could possibly or would they be unsure in the middle of high stakes moments. And I, I one morning I was watching an operation with a, a sort of surgeon on the side and guiding me through it. Uh, and one of the surgeons, one of Canada's top surgeons, thought he'd made an, a terrible error in this liver operation. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, he had been 
uh, ordering the, the other people around. He was hurrying everything. He was watching the clock. You know, he was the uh, epitome of what we call routine experts that are constantly kind of under, uh, falling back on what they already know, you know, old solutions, fighting the last battle, as they might say in the military. Well, it turns out he didn't uh, do great damage to the patient. Luckily, he was a little off target in the liver, um, but it, it really was an interesting illustration of what we expect in experts. And what we, I think what's becoming true is that it's really important to understand adaptive expertise. Now that's the person who kind of, I call it breaking the inertia of what they know, you know, so therefore when they're in an uncertain moment and when they're in a complex crisis situation, they basically, uh, adaptive experts take more time to assess a problem than even novices. And, and what's really important here too is that this, you know, this improvisational adaptive kind of approach to life is actually can be undertaken in just a minute or two. Uh, surgeons are not, you know, having to, adaptive expert surgeons do not go off on the mountaintop and spend three hours trying to understand how to fix that liver when something's <laughs> gone wrong. Uh, there, this can be, this really shows us that uncertainty can happen in very few minutes, it's basically uh, not just a spur to that wakefulness, but it's also a space in which you can uh, examine different possibilities and you know see what might what what how the how you might get to the better answer, not the first answer. And that's really really important. That's one of the most most important ways in which we can move beyond what we know. And that's, that's another theme that came up again and again in my investigations. In creativity, it's people who can move past the known that get to, in, to be inventive. They understand, uh, you know, if you're trying to think of uses of a brick, which is uses of a simple object, which is a really, um, you know, very uh, classic creativity test, usually people just think, walls and foundations and decks and sidewalks and things like that. But the creative people jump off into thinking about, you know, crumble it to the bottom of the fishbowl or use it as a pizza stone or <laughs> use it as a pillow, as in ancient Japan, all those sorts of things. So getting past what you know is really important, not just for learning, but for many, many other walks of life. Yeah. And you have this great example in your book that I think can help us think about how to be more comfortable with uncertainty in our jobs. And that's the Mars rover. So they were literally doing something that had never been done. We were going to send these little robots to Mars. But you talk about the debates that went on in those teams for for years and how how they worked with uncertainty. Yes, and it's really important that uncertainty is not just a solo act. There's actually a social side of uncertainty. It's really important. And so in the space program, uh, I found this incredible research on the Mars Explorer rover mission um, that put the rovers, the robots on Mars and discovered water on Mars and et cetera. They, they, they were working over 17 years, a very highly diverse team. And studies show that 20% uh, of the conversations among scientists and all the other engineers, et cetera, who were involved in this mission involved conflict. And most of that times of conflict, uh, you know, respectful, mild conflict involved you know, in expressions of uncertainty. So what's going on here? You know, uh, conflict is really important because uh, just constant agreement 
is shown not only in the brain, but also in terms of group performance to lead to lazy inaccuracies. Everyone just says, yeah, yeah, great. We've come to an outcome and slides on by. And, the, and, the, and it's really corrosive to be in agreement in a group. Incredibly, whether you're a climber on Mount Everest or in the space team or a jury or what have you. Uh, but in, con in contrast, if you are dis in disagreement, well, we might think, oh, so that means the, the right answer is going to squash all the wrong answers or the uh, dissenter is going to ride in uh, with, a, with, with the answer that everyone will then follow. But that's not actually what happens in the best kind of group performance. What happens is that uh, when we're in conflict, that kind of jolts people away from uh, uh, the love seat of accord, I call it. Basically, uh, people become unsure as a group. They begin to think deeper. They begin to question one another and surface information that had been kind of hidden that they each individually hold. And so that's really where the dynamic is. And that's how you get to know what you don't know, which is, again, how you go forward. How so you it's send a robot to Mars. Exactly. And do and 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 also bond the people in this MIR mission, MER mission were very, very bonded. I mean, completely identified with this mission as they should be, but constantly preserved uh, through rituals and their um, the way they operated. They constantly preserved conflict. For instance, they had something called a listening ritual in which they ended every meeting, every telephone call with a question, you know, anybody have anything different to say? Anybody want to raise their hand and say, I don't know. And that's how they kept alert. And that's how that's as one sociologist told me, that's why we're still talking about them. I think that's such a great idea, like creating a space for professional disagreement on any kind of team, no matter whether you're like marketing, journalism, like building a rover to Mars. I, I just really, exactly. I love that and, idea. And, and, the, and the leaders and the mission people didn't see those who raised their hand and disagreed or said, wait a minute, or I don't know. They didn't see these people as jerks or a pain as, as it, you know, they were making the group feel uncomfortable. Yes. In that moment. But at the same, they saw them as, as sort of the heroes, as the people to emulate. Uh, and that's, and that's another point that in research about groups, uh, groups that uh, actually cultivate this sort of mild, respectful conflict and uncertainty uh, feel less successful often. It's not comfortable, again, but at the same time, they perform better. People who, groups who uh, really cultivate agreement are those that feel really good and they don't even know they're not doing well. We have another email from Bill in Hermitage, Pennsylvania, and he says he's 77 years old and by any measure closer to my death than to my birth. And he has uncertainty with how much time he has left. Well, Bill, I guess don't we all? <laughs> but yes, as one slides toward, I'm not 22, by the way. And uh, so those sorts of feelings of one's mortality uh, I think maybe that seeds the ability of older people to enjoy life and to take every moment as, as wonderful to wake up and see the sunrise and really find joy in that. Maybe maybe people do become more present uh, to life uh, when they're older as a result of the uncertainty. 
Yeah, he says that he's come to terms with it in part by just being grateful for what his life has been so far. Yes, I think that's a that's a great way to there. There's the sort of secure, the secureness that one needs to launch off into the unknown um, that you feel you can look back and, uh, you know, have something to go on. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, we wouldn't again, wouldn't want wouldn't want to be completely insecure. But that's a, that's a really wonderful comment. I want to ask about decision fatigue. So I I plan my outfits for the week on Sundays and meal prep so that I don't have uncertainty about these things during the work week, sort of like how Steve Jobs used to only wear black turtlenecks. Um, and I sort of wonder if what we're doing is like if I'm freeing up my mind to be uncertain about the things that matter. Does that make sense? Like by being organized, I don't worry about where my socks are, but I get to like be uncertain about other stuff. No, I think that totally makes sense. And and there's a really uh, fantastic, successful program uh, uh, being undertaken in Head Start uh, initiatives to, it's called Ready for Routines, and it's teaching families and preschoolers, it's cross-generational, uh, to basically uh, erect routines in lives where there's often a lot of chaos, again, due to situations. And uh, the scientist I mentioned, Philip David Zalazo, uh, helped start this program. Ready for Routines is really not just about the routine. It's exactly what you're saying. It's about allowing people to gain space to reflect on what went right, what went wrong, how they might want to do better. It's giving them the space to look forward. And isn't that, again, in a very different circumstance, isn't that what a daydream is? It's basically a launch in imagining, a launching back off from the here and now. You're giving yourself space, and sometimes your mind just takes it, to look into the future. And most daydreams are actually uh, involve planning, and they're future-oriented, and they're in incredibly important for human mental well-being and also for creativity. So I call them the sketchbook of the mind. And so maybe by laying out your clothes, you're allowing yourself to have a little time with the sketchbook of your mind. Uh, that's what I love about uh, distance running is I do all my best daydreaming. After like mile two or three, when you've sort of settled into that rhythm, I, I will envision all kinds of wild futures for myself. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I do when I swim. I swim now uh, in the ocean, uh, all four seasons. And it's got its great daily dose of uncertainty because you never know what the conditions are going to be. But I also find it's just wonderful because there are no lanes in the ocean. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about bumping into anybody. Uh, and I, I do it with others, but at the same time, yes, I, I date and Oliver Sacks. I, I learned to uh, plan all his books, um, through, uh, pool swimming, lap swimming. Yeah, I have this theory that all writer's block can be cured after mile five. So <laughs> That's great. That's great. I also recently read this book about grit, about like growing your own grit. And it actually recommended trying activities like this was more physical activities or but trying an activity where you have a 50 percent chance at least of failure which I thought was such a wild idea, but I think it really dovetails with uncertainty. So you're going into something, say you've only run five and 10 Ks and you're like, and so you sign up for a half marathon. There's a 50-50 chance you're going to fail at completing it. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I was invited to, I'm going to be at a 
uh, book festival in Geneva, Switzerland, and the organizers are really wanting me to at least speak a little French, although I'll do my talk in English, um, but go to dinners, etc. And so, you know, I got out Duolingo and, and started up. I mean, I, I haven't spoken French in so long. And it used to be that I would be so worried about making mistakes. And I just had last night, I did 20 minutes on the computer. And I just, it was delightful, because I, you know, was getting into back into it for the first time, brushing this off. But at the same time, I just was not afraid of making errors. I just felt like so I'll I'll plow forward, and there will be a lot of failure, and that is another uh, marker of the adaptive expert, the person who uh, keeps growing. They take on harder cases all the time, the violinist concerto or the surgeons, you know, the difficult cases, uh, but they are, and they're also their performance. Uh, their practice, you know, they don't want to perform riddled with errors, but their practices are riddled with errors because they're at that edge. Yeah, I, I do sort of, I, you know, I kind of wonder if there's a real elasticity to uncertainty, like this, whether it's about teaching us to, in teaching us to be more adaptive, it teaches us to sort of meet that cliche of bend, not break. Oh, I think I completely think that's true. I mean, just in the you know description of the intolerant of uncertainty person is a black and white thinker, rigid thinker, etc. They try to you know stick to the tracks of what they already know. Um, you know, life is constantly changing, and isn't it wonderful if we can look around us and wake up to that, and then also contend with those changes uh, in ways that are strengthen us. Um, you know, I, this is not to sound Pollyannish. It's a hard road. I'm not talking about the picnic. I'm not talking about the easy way out or, you know, what you want to do when you're most tired, et cetera. But I am talking about uh, incorporating that back into our lives when, again, as I mentioned, so many pressures are there to make us unsure. And our tech devices, look at what a computer or smartphone looks like. It's neat. It's boxy. It's got templates. It's got bullet points. Uh, it's just, and that's not how humans are. Uh, the great, wonderful thing about investigating uncertainty is then you begin to understand that a lot of life, uh, and not just in daily moments, but in the mind, the life of the mind is made up of these liminal, gray, messy, dynamic uh, uh, parts to life, the daydream, the uh, the the epiphany that you might have about that neighbor who politics you hate, uh, but the messy epiphany. It's not just that. Hey, I love them even though I hate their politics. No, it's a it's a coming to terms. And and so there's so many different parts of life and the mind that maybe we need to contend that's more. All the time that we have for this hour, I could keep going another hour on certainty. But thank you so much for your time today.